0: Hello, welcome and thanks for tuning in. This is Search for Truth, with the first programme in a new series. The series is called The Power and the Glory of God's Kingdom. Now, our Bible teacher Brian will be covering this subject over the next four weeks. But today Brian's going to talk about the conditional aspect of the Kingdom, as we have it in our Bibles. The subject of this series is quite complex, so you may find benefit from the booklet which goes with it. I'll tell you how to get it at the end of the programme. But for the next 10 minutes, let's listen to Brian as he tells us about the conditional kingdom.
1: Thanks, John. We all love a conspiracy theory, or at least many people seem to. We hear of governments being accused of masterminding terrorist strikes against themselves and royalty being accused of contriving a fatal accident. But there's a greater conspiracy theory abroad than any misconceived human rumour. God is planning to remove all worldly power and to establish his own rule and Christians are in on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 says, "Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power." With those words, the apostle Paul presents to us a snapshot of God's kingdom as it will be sometime after the return of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets had written about this long ago, of course, when they predicted a Messiah ruling in glory, finally accepted by Israel. With the eye of faith, godly Israelites at the time of Christ's birth looked ahead towards this, this time of Messiah's earthly rule. Typical among them was a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was the man... Joseph of Arimathea, of course, who went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Such a sense of anticipation, as we've said, had been built up from prophecies like Daniel's, when he wrote of how one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come and when jesus came he encouraged this expectation by continually referring to himself as the son of man ultimately All those redeemed by Christ's work of salvation on the cross will be included in this eternal expression of the kingdom. That is, all who've been made holy through the cross of Christ will possess the kingdom forever. But we've begun at the end, and we should begin at the beginning. So let's now rewind and take the story from the beginning. God had said, you remember, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, of course. There's no doubt then that we were made to rule. But sadly, in a now fallen world, this ruling can be done independently of God. God's kingdom is only expressed when human rule on earth is dependent on heaven's will and heaven's agenda. Didn't our Lord speak in his example prayer of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? When that happens, that's when we see God's kingdom being expressed. To Abraham, God was the judge of all the earth. But from his time onwards, there was one privileged community which was subject to God's rule in a highly detailed way. God became, in a very particular sense, the king of the nation of Israel. As at Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, the nation of Israel became the special possession of God. Even when Israel was established under David's dynasty, each earthly king was no absolute monarch. Kings like David were the Lord's anointed, deriving sovereignty from the heavenly king to whom he was responsible for the manner in which he exercised his delegated rule. From this, there would seem to be three requirements for a kingdom – a people and a leader, and rules whereby the people are prepared to follow the leader's terms. Let's listen in to the exchange that took place between God and Israel. God said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus chapter 19 and verses 5 and 6. And this was a really unique relationship which didn't exist between God and any other nation. Israel, however, beginning with the ten northern tribes, failed to maintain this commitment. And the time came when one of the kings of David's dynasty, Abijah, stood up on Mount Zemaraim, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. He was addressing at this point the ten breakaway tribes in the north. And he said, You think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? So the southern king Abijah, who was still trying to be loyal to the nation's original agreement with God at Mount Sinai, Abijah was drawing the line that day according to scriptural principle. As far as he was concerned, it was us and them, and the majority northerners of the ten tribes, because of their disobedience, had forfeited any right to the kingdom which now properly applied only to the faithful minority of the two tribes in the south. Sadly, a hundred or so years later, the same decline of which Abijah had accused Jeroboam was all too evident in the south also. Abijah's boast was all but gone, and the privileged nation, or kingdom status, was forfeited through Israel's disobedience in the south now as well as in the north. By their unrighteousness, even the royal line of David proved itself unworthy of the honour of mediating God's rule on earth. For as long as God was head of his people, they were in turn head of the nations of the world. But when their kingdom status was withdrawn by God, sovereignty over Israel, and indeed sovereignty over all the world, passed over into the hands of Gentile rulers. It was a case of as long as Israel gave God his place, then God would give them their place. But later, once Israel disobeyed, God permitted kings like Babylonia's Nebuchadnezzar to rule the world. It still remained true, however, that God's rule over Israel had been very special. By contrast, over the Gentiles, it was in an altogether more general sense that God ruled. Incidentally, One of the most significant dates in world history is one you're unlikely to hear about in any secular day school. It is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the same as the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You'll find that reference in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 1, with that very important date in it. Why is it important? because this was the year when Israel was sidelined by God. It's the first specifically Gentile date in all the Bible. In that same year, Jeremiah wrote at the command of the Lord the story of Israel's persistent pursuit of evil during 23 years of his time as a prophet. This was the climax of all their backsliding. That year, there was also revealed to Jeremiah the 70 years' desolation of the land of Israel, which would take place while her people were exiled in Babylon. The very next year turned out to be important also, because in it, two things happened. First of all, at Jerusalem, King Jehoiakim took a knife to God's word and then burnt the fragments. While Daniel, who was in Babylon, along with the exiles, interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. In other words, the Jewish king Jehoiakim, through his total disrespect for God's word, had lost the kingdom, while the Gentile king Nebuchadnezzar was being informed by God through dreams of his place in world history. And so began a fateful time for Israel, which Jesus called the times of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, a time in which Israel would no longer be sovereign in even in their own land. How things had changed from the time when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, and he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. In Psalm 18, David had been able to say to God, You have placed me as head of the nations. But with that privilege came responsibility, responsibility in which Israel sadly failed. And upon their failure, God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar. That is, sovereignty passed into Gentile hands. Israel, destined originally to be at the head of the nations, went into captivity in Babylon. And God then put on hold the promises which would have sustained Israel at the head of the nations and not at the tail. God's longings to bless all the nations of the world through a radiant, law-loving Israel had to recede for a set time. But although sovereignty passed to the Babylonians, we need to realise there was a major difference between them and Israel. For the kingdom of the Lord, to use Abijah's phrase, would never equally describe the Babylonian empire, even when it exercised world dominance by God's sovereign permission they ruled subject to God's sovereignty. But with Israel, God went further in terms of a revelation that was redemptive in purpose and a relationship that was conditioned by rules. So what we've established is this. In Israel, in the Old Testament, we find a case of God's special rule as distinct from his general sovereignty in human affairs. The Bible says the Lord became king in Jeshurun, Another word for Israel, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Later in Israel, God had certainly permitted kings of David's line who mediated his rule, each being the Lord's anointed. However, David's kingly line was only heralding the ultimate realization of God's rule, which is seen in the second psalm As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Yes. That ideal is yet to be seen in Christ. It was God's plan to send the Messiah, one who would be rejected by Israel nationally and would gather believers, ultimately, of all nations around him. Thus, so far, our biblical picture of the kingdom is still a developing one in which we too are implicated because, as we'll see, there's a spiritual foretaste on offer today as we spread the good news of how we're to be ready for the ultimate kingdom expression which is still to come.
0: As our hymn said, God's kingdom stands and grows forever till all his creatures own his sway. And as I said earlier, there's a transcript booklet for this series. If you like one or more for group study, ask for the title, The Power and the Glory of God's Kingdom. You can contact us by email or by post, and it is the address. Search for Truth, P.O. Box 70115, Chilomani, Blantyre, Malawi. The email address is sft at churchesofgod.info And you can also find past programmes and some helpful material on our website. Just go to www.searchfortruth.org.uk Now, that's all we have for today. Once again, thanks for being with us and do join us again next week if you can. But until then it's our very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me John. So goodbye for now and may God richly bless you. Yes.